Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. This is Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show today. We've got a great show lined up for you. I am grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to the show live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel, and I always start off with gratitude because I think it's so important. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers, and I am online, so I am here. So uh, chat me if you are in the chat room. Say hello. Uh, Please email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest that you know is coming on. You can reach me at tracy at tracylflatten.com, and tracy is spelled T-R-A-C-I. In the coming weeks, some fascinating guests are coming on. Next week on Thursday, November 12th at 1 p.m., our regular time, the English psychic Paula Roberts will be on talking about unlocking the secrets of your handwriting and also about ghost hunting. Very fun. On Thursday, November 19th, Dr. Linda Hillebrand will be on to discuss her journey as a physician of integrative medicine. Very cool. Um, And then Thanksgiving, I'm going to run a best of independent artists and thinkers episode that I tried to run during my vacation in August and that just didn't get run. So you'll get to hear some best of. And every single guest I've had on has been wonderful. So this is just a few of the earliest guests and then I have to make another best of episode because everyone has been amazing. So tune in, keep checking the website of independentartistthinkers.com and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on this show. I am so delighted today to have the Honorable Steve Acunto, Vice Consul of Italy, to talk about how to be a patron of the high arts 
in a world besieged by low art. He will also talk about cultural diplomacy. Very cool. On a personal note, because Steve is a friend, and perhaps Steve will talk about this, I would like to say that it is my personal opinion that Mr. Okunto should voice the production of King Lear and that Steve should play Lear himself. And while this may sound like flattering on my part, and I can hear Steve laughing in the background, I would like to assure my listeners that I have firsthand experience of Steve's excellence in inhabiting that role and in speaking Shakespeare's immortal line. Anyone lucky thank you. as Lear would thank me for urging him to do this. You're welcome, Steve. Go say hello thank to you. Thank you, Tracy. And you, and you made a charming and beautiful Cordelia, actually. Ah, uh, you're the best. Um, Steven Kucho is the founder and president of CINN Group, a private group of companies with holdings in publishing, insurance, real estate, and entertainment. CINN's Capital Laboratory Production Inc. produces theatrical productions, films, concerts, and other events, intellectual property production, and publishing rights in inventory of plays, books, and films. In 2016, Capital Laboratory presented the world premiere of the Lost Brown stage adaptation of the Sondal classic. The Red and the Black, at New York's historic St. Clement's Theater. In 2013 to 2014, the company produced the award-winning short film Just Me Salute and began co-production of the play Queen for a Day off-Broadway. Capital Laboratory has several theatrical and film projects underway, including the feature film Caravaggio. Mr. Kunto is chairman of the Italian Academy Foundation, a leading cultural foundation whose cultural diplomacy initiatives include more than 60 Carnegie Hall concerts, art shows, films, publications, and concerts in New York and Rome. The Italian Academy Foundation publishes the highly prized quarterly, The Italian Journal. In 2014, IAF sponsored the landmark exhibit Frate Francesco at the UN, featuring rare manuscripts of St. Francis of Assisi for the first time ever outside Italy. Mr. Kunto is also the chairman of the board of La Scuola d'Italia, an independent Italian prep school on New York's east side with 300 students and a distinguished faculty. Mr. Kunto attended New York University and is the recipient of many, many, many awards. Steve, welcome, and thanks so much for being on. Now, Tracy, I am exhausted just listening to that recital, but thank you for being so generously complete, actually. We, we have done a lot, but... Uh, you, you uh, not, there's, a, there's a lot left to be done, actually. Well, I agree on both accounts, but you've done amazing and extraordinary things, and it's sort of fascinating. <clears throat> Thank you. So I wanted to ask you the question I always start uh, my shows with, with for my guests, and that is, tell us how you got started. This is this is a big bio I read. Um, how did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training do you have? When did you know you were going to be involved in the arts and cultural diplomacy? Were books, paintings, music, and theater a major presence in your home when you were growing up? I know you're an accomplished pianist amongst your, all your many other accomplishments. What did you think you would be? So start with your childhood and lead up to now. Oh, boy, this is going to be a tall order, Tracy. <laughs> but uh, let, let, let's see. I was uh, raised by my grandparents, Hercule and Palmira Bisordi. My grandfather was uh, of Pisan and Abruzzese origin. My grandmother was Swiss, Southern Swiss. And my aunt, their daughter, uh, raised me in, largely in the United States, in Switzerland, in Locarno, and in, in Italy. I had the benefit of uh, a very good upbringing, very happy upbringing with them. And uh, studied uh, pretty hard, I would say, and that was the way you did it. 
being around uh, around people who were multilingual and who had their own cultural accomplishments, it was hard not to try to get ahead intellectually. Um, went to New York University uh, on scholarships for Latin and Greek. Now, believe it or not, there were still people in the 60s who majored in Latin and Greek, or what we used to call laughing and grief. And frankly, uh, it was it was a great subject area. And I went on to get a master's degree in it, uh, highly impractical, but uh, but beautiful. And that was my grandfather's modicum. He said to me that I should do something that was very practical, like learning a great language, so that I'd be a much better thinker at whatever I did. And I don't know that that's worked, but anyway, that was that was the plan. <laughs> so I got a master's degree in Latin, Latin and Greek from NYU, uh, and then I continued to study in Columbia with, uh, in the field of epigraphy and paleography. And uh, from there, I found that there were no more courses in the East, eastern United States. And so I sort of let that fade away and began to do some writing and things like that. Then, um, not wanting to be a public school teacher, which was really the only availability, or a part-time college teacher, which is what I did as well, um, I, I, I taught, actually, I taught Shakespeare in college, uh, college level in New York, and I, I also did some some minor level acting, as you mentioned, King Lear. I learned Shakespeare because after Latin and Greek, Shakespeare was a picnic. It was in English. It was articulate, uh, easy to memorize uh, because of the, the intense rhythm and dynamics of the drama of Shakespeare. So I did a lot of that, you know, and uh, enjoyed, mm-hmm. it, enjoyed it immensely. And then uh, I got into the publishing business through a magazine called Entertainer. Now, the Entertainer magazine was a weekly. It was sort of an ancestor of Time Out magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, to, not, not, a direct, not, not a direct ancestor, but uh, generally something that was popular at the time. It had TV listings, reviews galore. There were some weeks where I would do three different reviews, one food, one uh, film, one theater. And do the editing as well. So it was an upstart magazine. Well, anyway, that folded into becoming a major regional, uh, Westchester magazine, uh, Westchester Illustrated magazine. And that joined up with Hudson Valley, Wall Street, and Stock Market magazines. And lo and behold, I was the editor-in-chief of the whole team. And then I decided to get into my own business, so I started buying magazines. Along the way, uh, bought magazines, books, rights, wound up having a big company. I wasn't too happy with it, honestly. It was, you know, 15 offices and a lot of time in the air. And, you know, not enough time in Italy, not enough time in my family. So, uh, I, you know, I wound that down. I sold it. And I keep an interest in business, uh, pretty much. I think that, that's, that's the structure of it all. Along the way, I've done a lot of, a lot of work on, on the cultural side, you know, on boards of directors and universities, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, it's what you have to do. I mean, the the idea that you know, the the idea of a sort of an unofficial, uh, an unofficial thinker, or what they call a public scholar nowadays, always it always attracted me. I never really wanted to be an academic. I thought it was stifling, and of course, after reading that T. S. Eliot was a uh, a bank clerk and then a publishing executive, I felt liberated from the need to be an academic. But uh, for Latin and Greek, I had to stay in the academic world. So I kind of kept that knowledge and kept the, my attachment to that study, which I still do, by the way. Uh, but yeah, you got to read. 
you got to read Homer and Virgil, the Iliad and the Aeneid, and the Aeneid in the original languages. That is so amazing. Yes, and, and I can tell you because I stay close to them. I can still recite long passages of Homer, Virgilio, and Dante Alighieri and Shakespeare from memory because that's the way we were taught everything to memorize. You know, I had to memorize the first 360 lines of the Iliad for my master's degree at NYU, which I did, and uh, wrote them out, actually, and studied them and wrote them and studied them and wrote them again and again. I stay very close to it, Tracy, and I, I'm, and I, I do recommend it as a course of study, although the only quality you really come out, and your only, the only job you're qualified for is either to be a shepherd or uh, a, disconsolate, <laughs> a, a, a disconsolate person in the park somewhere standing on a soapbox uh, uh, to, to talking about Homer. So, uh, Homer ravages the soul. It's good for everything. Right. I should mention along the way that I've uh, I have been married for quite a while to the same woman, a uh, wonderful woman, Carol, and I have uh, two grown children, Steve Jr. and Claudia. Claudia lives in Rome with her husband and son, who are adorable, all three of them, and equally adorable, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe more so because there are more of them, is my son, uh, Steve, and his wife, Veronica, and uh, their two boys, Enrico and Eduardo. So we've got three young guys coming up. Uh, what a gift. And four, what a wonderful four thing. great children. It really, it really is. It makes it all fill out properly, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, that's the story, Tracy. One of the things I always wanted to do was, because, because I'm Italian and Italian-American, I've had kind of a relationship. You know, there's three types of individuals in that sphere. There are pure Italians who come here to work, let's say, and they retain their citizenship. There are Italian-Americans who are American citizens and think more of about uh, baseball and so on than they would about soccer. But then there are the transatlantics, the people who've lived their lives, as I have, going back and forth constantly, having residents there, residents here. And that uh, set of individuals, uh, they actually are the best ambassadors for both countries. Um, so I took this idea of cultural diplomacy. It's not original to me. It's something I picked up, I think, in Foreign Affairs magazine a while ago. And the idea is to use culture as a diplomatic mechanism to gain appreciation and uh, conviction in, the, in the, the, the eyes and ears of the uh, attendees at events and such, to gain the conviction about, the, about a certain quality or desirability of an ethnic group. So with respect, for example, to the Italian-Americans, who are a very proud group of people, uh, they have had an image problem because of all this garbage uh, in the media that emphasizes always the criminal element, or earlier than that, the uh, another element, the Rudolph Valentino stereotype, uh, before that, the, the Marx Brothers stereotype of the illiterate immigrant. They fought those things for many years, but I think they fought them with the wrong weapons. The weapon is a brand that is unmistakably beautiful and and unprecedented in the rest of world history. I mean, the, the Ming Dynasty and the Renaissance and, what, and the Enlightenment and maybe the American age of the 50s and, and 60s and so on. I mean, these are unmistakable periods in history, and they speak louder than any arguments countering a bad image. So the Italian-American groups, I've always encouraged them to, 
to try to bring Italy forward rather than simply a negative argument against a certain cultural stereotype. So that's led me to this little foundation. I'm going on a little bit now, I'm sorry. That's so a little okay. foundation which which has put on concerts, uh, we've made movies, books, to try to get to export what is the best in modern Italian culture and in the historic. So that but, that's really that. I think that summarizes it. That, that's sort of wonderful. And you, when you were growing up, I know you've told me there was music a lot in your home. <clears throat> there was, it seems to me now, a reflection, other than extraordinarily good conversation, good food, uh, very stylish clothing. My aunt was my aunt was a fashion plate. Um, that the other big element was music. At uh, on a Sunday evening, at four o'clock, the world stood still when Toscanini broadcast on NBC. My grandfather would make it over to the Baths of Caracalla every summer in Rome, so that we could be there for the opera season. We would also be at the Metropolitan, of course, Metropolitan Opera. They had concerts in the home. I mean, it was it was a musical environment. On my father's side of the family, my grandfather, Stefano Acunto, I'm his namesake, clearly, uh, was a composer of music who practiced uh, furiously, very privately, though, but furiously, was uh, an accomplished pianist and quite a good composer. Problem was, he married very wealthy. He, my grandmother was Loretta Berardini, uh, the daughter of the, the founder of... Uh, the U.S. branches of Banca Berrettini, which the family owned. And she married uh, my grandfather, and of course that led to his not having to worry about earning money from performing or from lessons or any of those things. So he kind of let it go, and by the time he was 44, he generally retired from everything except following the stock market. At 99, when he passed away, 99 years, 10 months of age, Wow! uh, I heard nothing but music in my head. Uh, on his 95th birthday, he played La Boheme for us, and uh, he was just an amazing man. So, yes, there's been music in my life these many years. There still is. I can't imagine not having uh, the opera, uh, being at the opera, bad sentence, going to the opera or having it come to me through uh, electronic means all the time. I'm a, real, I'm a real junkie. I really am. You know, I had Elizabeth DeShong on the show a few months ago. She's a mezzo-soprano. And yes. she was talking about everything opera can give to people today. What do you think opera <clears throat> gives to people now? What makes it relevant now? Well, first of all, it's, you know, I, I, I'm very interested when I hear these performers of country music, for instance, or popular music, how they fake a southern accent or a, a western accent and how they can never get their emotions out in a manner that's fitting the emotion. It's, it always seems to fall short, these screaming or yelling things or exaggerated movement or whatever that is, to try to get out at an emotion that is so effortless for a great artist like a, like a Pavarotti or a Domingo, where they can command the full range of their voice and the full range of what is presented is very strong emotional content without having to pander or be self-indulgent or call it to undo attention to themselves as performers. They call attention to themselves by reaching these heights and depths uh, rather than simply gyrating or, uh, or, or doing something that really doesn't give full breadth 
to the emotions. That's what I love about Shakespeare. If you listen to Paul Schofield reciting King Lear, or even Burton or Williamson reciting Hamlet, they can get the full range of a character's anger or, or, or uh, well, passions, let's just say, out without difficulty. No strain, you know. I, I love that about the opera. The opera also, I mean, it brings production values uh, extraordinaire. It brings uh, a, a, a story. It, it, the stories of the operas, while some of, some of them are silly, like Trovatore, other stories are brilliant, brilliant stories. I mean, the, the whole construction of the ring, uh, the operas of the late operas of Verdi, the adaptation of Otello, his work on Rioletto, uh, Puccini's Madame Butterfly, Turandot. You you can't you can't imagine the 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 storylines uh, in any other environment except film, perhaps, uh, and of course written literature. But it's very hard to imagine those storylines being ex- exploited as they are in the opera. I hope I've given you a good answer. I I think you know I, again the opera gives you a full range of potential for expression. And the values aren't visual, uh, audio. There's just so much. Even going to the opera is a ritual enough to dignify the work. And that's very, very big because we, we talk about, you know, we have artists today who are celebrities, but their art is not as dignified as as they are. They're not, the art is surprised more than the art. The art sometimes is... Uh, I mean, I think of some modern contemporary artists whose work is really doesn't really matter much, but the artists themselves are on the scene. They're they're uh, they're at the Cirque restaurant or someplace like that. The opera, on the other hand, the stories and the depth of the performance and production challenges really calls attention to the art. That's very important to me, Tracy. Anyway, again, I'm I'm sorry no, I'm going off a little bit. That's wonderful. Talk about dignity in art. I think that's really important. Well, we grow up in an environment. You know, I, I'll tell you a story. There's a fellow whom I've known most of my life. His name is Vincenzo Zuccarelli. And Zuccarelli came over to the United States. Very fine man. He opened up a salumeria, you know, a, a meat, what they call it, a delicatessen. And little by little expanded it, made a lot of money, grew and all that. But he he, he never really knew art or opera or such. But, you know, from the very beginning, he always had a respect for it. So if you approach art now, of course, now he's quite quite an aficionado and, and that, that sort of thing. But, you know, Vincent, what I watched with him was an innate respect for the dignity of the process, for the result, for the aim of the artist. And that's an irreplaceable motive. It really is. Uh, Italian people, from, I mean, among many others, Germans are the same way and, that I've known, and French and others, I mean, uh, Austrians. Uh, but Italian people have a tremendous innate, I don't know how it comes out, but an innate respect, even if the understanding is not there. Even if they don't go to church, the respect for what's in the church, the, the altarpieces, the, the enormity of the, the output of the Renaissance and the Baroque, that's... Um, that's a subject matter of dignity and of respect. And I believe that art should be approached that way. I really do. I, I sometimes feel like we live in a time when dignity is undervalued. Well, it is. I mean, you, you know, the, the idea that uh, 
Well, I mean, there is a certain slob culture, as you know, I mean, uh, that, that pervades things, people walking around with, walking down the street with drinks in their hands and, you know, poorly put together. Uh, and it's not a matter of poverty or wealth. It's a matter of habit. I think the acceptable norm for, uh, first of all, the acceptable vocabulary for appreciating art is generally very limited. Uh, children in school aren't aren't taught the difficult uh, uh, aspects of it because the teachers themselves often don't know it. And that, it just has not been handed down. There was a break in the teaching of history and art somewhere in the 60s when social purpose took over, sociology, and the, uh, the outcome was not the student's intelligence, intellect, um, moral and, and uh, 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 spiritual uh, acuity, where it became something more like their social standing or their ability to get a job. So that teaching went out the window, and the discipline of appreciation, of knowing how to approach art. I'm, I'm not saying that it should be worshipful or it, shouldn't be, it should be uh, delicate, but it should be with some understanding of respect and dignity uh, for the art and the artist. That's, that's a big value, Tracy, really. It's well, a, talk, it's a talk big about thing. that. Talk about the discipline of appreciation. That's a beautiful turn of phrase, Steve. I wrote that down. Well, uh, okay, good. Uh, you read Eliot's criticisms and his his uh, insistence upon it's implicit throughout all of his criticism. I've read a lot of it. I love the way he writes, and a lot of it relates to what the the lector, the the reader, or the the observer or the listener brings to the process. And nowadays, because the media are so great at presenting things to us passively, we don't have to work as hard to draw conclusions, to draw pleasure, to to take from a poem a written page with ink on it, the same sense of beauty and lift as you might have, for example, from a movie where there was the, a Panavision expression of a beautiful field of, uh, of daffodils, let's say, versus what you would read in Wordsworth. So I think, you know, I think that has changed and that's affected people's discipline toward these processes. You know, when you're, uh, when, well, you and I know a very good sculptor. Uh, yes. That man, is, <laughs> your, your husband, that yes. man is... Uh, he does a lot of hard work. He he takes his work seriously. His designs are extraordinary. Uh, there, there is some filmmaker somewhere who could film an image of um, Hermes, let's say, and make a beautiful go of it and have you go all around it with the camera and even explain it to you as, as the camera's going around it. But when you think about it, that's actually taking the subject and presenting it to you versus making you work your way up to it and understand it and draw conclusions. I mean, Ezra Pound, I, I remember his book, The ABC of Reading, with great books, a great book of criticism. He talks about people's ability actually to look at things themselves, unto themselves, and, and, and comment very concretely and practically on what they're looking at. And he made that the doorway to understanding phrases and and poetry. It was it's a beautiful book. And all those Eliot, his book, others by uh, oh, there's so many good critics over the years, the, uh, particularly in the English in the English tradition. That uh, honestly, uh, 
it requires a discipline to grasp that and to reach no. up to the work of art. Well, you talk about reaching up to the work of art, but I can tell you as a novelist, you know, my first novel, Immortal, does make some demands on the reader. And a woman, you know, sort of a, an acquaintance of mine who has an MD, so this is an educated woman, said to me, she had me, invited me to her book club, which was lovely, so I got to speak to the book club. But she said to me, you demand a lot from your reader. And it wasn't praise. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and no, it's true. I thought that was really interesting because I don't want to, you know, as a, an artist today, I've got this double-edged sword because on the one hand, I want to I want to engage people, as many people as possible with my novels. And on the other hand, I want to write something of quality that I'm proud of. Right. Well, you know, again, in, in, as a former student of Latin and Greek and, of course, of Dante Alighieri in his own language, I can tell you all of those require an enormous amount of work, understanding references, style, uh, special uses. It's very hard work. Shakespeare, too, for a modern student to read the uh, soliloquy of Hamlet, um, the, uh, the one that begins, Now I'm Alone. Do you it's remember quite a bit of vocabulary. Do you it? Say it. Do you remember it? Say it if you remember it. Well, I, I do remember. I'm not going to do Say that it. on radio. Yeah, but, yeah, it, well, he, he says, Now I'm alone, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Uh, is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his voice, and his whole function suited with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. Well, a student, there's a lot more of that aria too, but a soliloquy too, but he, he goes on to conclude the plays the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. But his likeness, his, 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 not likeness, his comparison of himself to a player who goes into tears over Hecuba in an artificial play, when he can't uh, arouse himself to killing his, his, uh, his stepfather. Uh, frankly, it takes a lot of work to get all those emotions together to understand the expression of them in the soliloquy. That takes a lot of work so and see, a lot of discipline. Tell my listeners, what makes the work worthwhile? Well, Ezra, I'll use Ezra Pound's words. It, great literature, great music uh, is news that stays news. It's something that's news once and it stays news. That's why so much art is ephemeral and passing fancy because it really doesn't stay news. Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare's information and expression about the human spirit will be news way beyond my life, your life, uh, and others. And the same is true of Dante Alighieri, same is true of a work of Picasso or a work of uh, Raffaello. It's news, that's, uh, it's news about humanity, about experience, about the world that will stay news and will refresh audience after audience. I mean, the expression used is universality. Well, universality may re, may actually talk about the fact that uh, a structure like uh, a play by Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, for example, will have universal appeal and application, meaning throughout many cultures. But uh, its other test is, but will it appeal generation, generation, and generation later? You see, mm -hmm. Elvis Presley had appeal cross-culturally whether that, that news will stay news over a period of 300 years 
or in like Shakespeare's case, uh, uh, quite a bit more, 500 years, 600 years. Now, that's a big question, Tracy. Well, I get on the Stairmaster at the gym. I still listen to Elvis Presley. <laughs> Gets my blood right, I like going. His, I, I get a kick out of his work, too. It's very, something that's very funny when you hear it. You know, I want you to wear my ring around your neck. I mean, that, it's kind of funny. I mean, uh, hound dog also. But anyway, whether it's going to be news that stays news for the rest of time is another question entirely. So tell me, Steve, who has inspired you? Both personally and, prof- and as a cultural diplomat on, on several fronts. Who inspires you? Well, I mean, I'm inspired by by artists uh, constantly. Toscanini was, I would say, far and away the greatest influence on my interest in music because of his seriousness, his attack, and his uh, sobriety. Uh, there have been others. T.S. Eliot has always been a standout to me. And, of course, when you've read, once you've read Dante Alighieri, you honestly can't go too far and be satisfied because he's so great. Mm-hmm. I've, had, I've had friends uh, in the field who were an inspiration to me. One fellow is uh, an artist, Edward Joby. I always loved, I love the way Ed lives and the way he sees his work, you know. And the Italian futurists were, particularly Bala and uh, uh, the others, they were, they, they were of a particular drive to me. Because they felt, you know, here's what it is. They feel their art immediately. There was just not an arbitrary set of functions. Uh, Elliot wrote well, of they, John the Dunn. Italian, the Italian futurists thought that art should could only be what war, death, speed. I mean, they were, it was this particular engine they were getting at. Well, they were the ones who embraced the industrial age. They said, let's not be afraid of it. Let's make it part of our psychology and run it up into becoming art and uh, uh, structured discourse. And that was very, very courageous of them to do that. They really were courageous. So, so anyway, Elliot, but Elliot wrote about Dunn. He said, John Dunn, the poet, felt his emotions, quote, as immediately as the odor of a rose. That's a beautiful sentiment, you know. Mm-hmm. So, those artists who had that capability, immediacy, uh, we call we call it living one's art, but it's much more than that. It's having a sense of immediacy. Yeats had that. The England, the yeah. uh, Irish poet William Butler Yeats. I mean, there are many you can identify with exactly that. And when an artist fakes it, when they when they when they f- uh, um, pretend to be living an artist's life, uh, and they call what they do the, the result they call art, but it's only mediocre. The truth is that's, that's performance. That's self-actualization. It's not art. Great art is not self-actualization. Really, it's, it's something different. It's a product that extends beyond the self, the person. Very hard to find nowadays. It's hard to find in politics. You know, I, I was looking at just this for curiosity. I watched the debate the other night, the Republican debate, and I watched the, the, the Democrats, the Clinton, Sanders, and uh, O'Malley and those people. And out of all of it, I got the idea. I'm not going to pick people or name names. But the, the distinction to me was there were some people on those stages, both of them, Democrat and Republican alike, who were self-actualizing. They were not actually doing something for the public good or for posterity or for... Um, for 
for history. They were doing a self-actualization thing. And I think that's a very good modicum to look at artists the same way. Are they self-actualizing or are they producing something for generations to have an influence on the future of emotions, on the future of understanding? I mean, show me the artist who's, who's running up against uh, any single soliloquy of Shakespeare's with his work and trying to get as much out of expression as he could. And I'll show you someone working very hard who wants to do something more permanent than, than uh, the flimsy stuff we often see today. I really mean that. Well, so I guess maybe I'm showing my age a little bit too because I'm, you know, I am past 50. But the truth of the matter is that uh, you see it when you start to kick the tires hard enough. A lot of air comes out of the art scene today. Well, Steve, one of the reasons I started this show, Independent Artists and Thinkers, is because I believe that most of the big studios, the big galleries, the big publishing companies, that they're just operating in the very short term, and they're slopping stuff out there that's just going to make money right now, and mostly what makes money right now is about sex and is about shock value. Um, and it's not about those deeper qualities of spirit and um, bringing yourself to something that's going to stay news for a long time. That, that's, you know, I'm just finding that um, our big establishments are no longer really producing art and that it's happening out there in the world with the people who are dedicated to, a, to their vision of art, but it is not happening because of this kind of tawdry world we live in. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, you take publishers past and publishers present, and all of them want to make money because that that keeps a publishing company going. But, but you today, know, Steve, there are publishers who who would rather themselves they would rather be on the society pages than actually produce anything in their own pages that's worth producing. And that's what I'm seeing very frequently. I'm sorry, well, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I just said. Um, the publishers of today, I think, my personal opinion, and I generally call them legacy publishers, is that they've um, they've stopped investing in an author's career, a middleist author's career, to evolve a readership over time. They expect every single book to be a bestseller out of the gate. So that an author who's taking three or four or five books to hit their stride and get a book that's news and it's going to stay news, Big, the big publishing, the big traditional companies are not going to invest in that author. We are all poorer for it. And the big, yeah. and partly they're driven by Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and they're terrified of that. And then there's this big sea change in publishing. Um, but I do think there's quality out there. It's just that individuals are doing it. I don't think the big companies are. And in terms of politicians, I'm very cynical. I am a child of my age. I think they're all self-actualizing, and none of them care about service. So, I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen a few uh, who were who were really good citizens, first and foremost. You know, in Rome, that was the the best thing you could say about yourself. You could say it was a sign of great dignity to be a Roman citizen, you know. But, you know, we live... Um, I'll, I'll come back to you with a quote from Ezra Pound, you know. Pound in his... Uh, one, I think one of the best poems ever written is this poem of his, You, Selwyn Morberly. Ode pour l'élection de son sepulcre. And in this work, he, he says, the age demanded an image of its accelerated grimace. And I think that's happening. I think we're getting that in the waves and waves of trash that are put out here. Our age is one of 
insensitivity of um, of of, of uh, sort of a an, a supermarket of endless appetite with the people who actually have kind of lidless eyes. They they they, they can't close their eyes to anything. And I, I believe that the age is demanding the grimace that it's getting from much of the world of art. And uh, I mean, the extent, for example, of smut or pornography, the extent, for example, of pulp pulp works, the extent on television of what is just outlandishly stupid work that is um, put out again and again. But someone's demanding it. Someone's demanding that work. And so it's being prescribed to them, and they demand more, and there's more prescribed back. It's really a vicious cycle. And I think you're right, Tracy, that publishers are not, they don't care for the final output of their product. They're, they're in a, uh, uh, a kind of a, a spin cycle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, and so that's... Let's, let me take you back to kind of the cultural diplomacy and high art, and can you summarize some of the more important points of what you learned along the way as a patron of the fine arts and as a cultural diplomat? Well, I, I, it's hard to do that. I just know one thing you have to do. If you're really going to deliver it, you've got to understand what you're delivering. It is not a passive function where you throw money at things and you say, okay, let's get that, let's put that on and let's do that show. That sounds great or where you're sponsoring an artist's vision, per se. You really have to know it. If you can know it and explain it, if you can really uh, export to your friends and others the values that are in the work you, 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 you promote, you've really done something. Unfortunately, there are many people in the, in the sphere of philanthropy who they are very good people. I mean, philanthropists are good people. They support others, okay? But very often they're passive. And so the philanthropy is kind of... I don't know, it, 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 it frees up the artists to an extent because they're not watched carefully necessarily or, or guided. But it's much better when there's an involvement between the, the philanthropist or the sponsor and what is sponsored. The outcome has to be better. I mean, it's natural that it would be better because there's pride on the line, pride of production, and there's uh, commitment to the, to the type of art. I mean, I did a futurist. I have a couple of futurist works. I've loaned them out a number of times to museums. And I, I make it a point that I will go with them on opening night, answer questions, whatever has to happen. And usually I do a statement or something which, which promotes the movement, the futurist movement. The result of that is a very committed um, audience who realize that this is not a passive thing. This is a, someone really believing in an art movement who knows that it's news that will stay news. And that's what I've learned. And what are some of the major challenges you faced in your work thus far, and what are some of the major rewards? Well, money is a problem for everyone. I'm getting enough of it to do good artwork, but we've managed. And uh, another challenge is real talent. You have, in a world of uh, great inflation, you have instant, I mean, I've seen some people who were touted as being great talents in the opera, in uh, classical music, in film, and so on. And honestly, I mean, I'm no great judge. I, I'm not, I don't call myself a judge. I'm just someone who's seen a lot of it. But the reality is, with, if there's great inflation even in the concert hall. There's instant, uh, I mean, I'll I just give you a parallel example. I read the story of a man named Willie Pep who was a champion boxer, one of the best in history. 
He had 232 fights. Today, an individual in the similar weight class in boxing can get a championship match, having won maybe 23 or 24 fights. It's great inflation. It's promotion. It's not really the art. And so uh, I believe that one of the challenges is going past all of the hype, all of the good agents, all of the, the ability of people to present things in a treated manner uh, on the Internet, where there's everything from uh, their pictures are, are, are fixed up, um, I forgot the expression, and, and, their, and their sound can be enhanced so greatly that the pure voice, the pure ability is something you have to find. You've got to dig to find it. And that's a challenge. It really is. Also, the cost of doing business in the arts has risen dramatically. The, uh, there are parts of the sphere that are merciless. I mean, if you, you want to rent Zanko Hall at uh, Carnegie Hall, it's a beautiful space. But the minimums and the requirements of the unions and of all the other things, while I'm not arguing that anybody should make money, I'm just saying it's an onerous beginning. You start at a level that is discouraging for the ordinary individual who's got only modest income. I've had to interest people in the arts to the extent that we could keep on paying for it without my, my going to the poorhouse. So anyway, got a way to go yet, but still, that is a challenge, Tracy. And what are some of the rewards of the work you've done in cultural diplomacy and sponsoring the arts? Well, I've seen great young artists be encouraged to move forward. Uh, Stefano Greco, the pianist, uh, Sandro Russo, the pianist, uh, certain young singers, Francesco Pavese, uh, others we've worked with. I've seen them cross the Atlantic and in so doing cross the Rubicon in their careers, having the confidence, therefore, to to go to the next level, the desire to go to the next level in a highly competitive field. And that's been one of the big rewards. Another huge reward has been seeing, like just ancient loops, the movie we did, it's a short movie, it's a 28-minute movie, but it's brilliant, avant-garde, to see that applauded at Sundance and Where to find that there find, was acceptance. Can people see what? that? Is there, where, is there a place for people to see your movie? Uh, I, I don't know. The author, Mike Harrison and uh, Bill Morrison, probably can, could provide it. But it's 28, what it is, it's, it's, the ancient loops refer to ancient film clippings, which were restored and put together. And the subject of each of them, and many of them are damaged, but they run consecutively. They're silent. They run consecutively. Each of them is about the celestial spheres, uh, the, uh, the resurrection, the Garden of Eden. In other words, topics that are huge uh, in these old incarnations, the early, early, early film. But they're accompanied by a musical score by Michael Harrison for solo cello that is overwhelmingly beautiful. The effect is electrifying. It's electrifying. And we, we, we've had that in a number of locations. And uh, I mean, there are other things, too. The night we did uh, at, at the, the Avery Fisher Hall, the Baroness uh, Mariucci is really my dear and recently deceased friend. And I put on the opera La Cambiada di Matrimonio, which is the marriage certificate of Rossini. And it was an immense success. It was the first time in America since 1936. This was in 2005, wow. I think. And, uh, and the singers loved it. And everyone watching the whole thing come together and wind up in, 
the applause, to wind up in the satisfaction of bringing something out of the closet, blowing off the dust, and saying here to the whole world, and having them accept it. That was very, very pleasing. And how have you had to think outside the box in order to accomplish what you've accomplished as a patron of the arts and a cultural diplomat? Well, it takes a little bit of daring, I must say. Uh, you can't you, you, you can't accept the usual courses. I mean, just about anybody with 50 cents can join a, a charity or a, uh, one of those things in New York, raise money, have a lot of fun, and all that sort of thing. But when you get to the level of uh, creativity, where you're sponsoring real creativity, it is very, very challenging. And I think... Um, I would I would just say from my experience has been you've got to make a study of it. I mean the concept of public intellectual is pretty far gone in our society, but a person who wants to be a real true patron has to become that, uh, and it's hard. I mean believe me, and I'm, I don't claim that I'm any any good at it, but that's what I've worked at, and that's made a big difference in getting outside the box, in and sponsoring things like just ancient loops that are totally avant-garde. I mean, this is way out on the front edge of music, expression, and the combination of the two. That was that was a big leap. And I give Michael Harrison the credit for engaging me. And Michael's a genius composer. And where do you see your work evolving to? Where do you see it going in five years, ten years, twenty years? Well, I think um, I want to undertake some movies. I have three of them right now I'm interested in that got the rights for two. Uh, I'd like to make three movies and get them out there. They're beautiful. And that's, uh, you know, I just don't want to make any, I don't want to make any junk. I haven't liked all the works I've sponsored over the years, but I want to make something that's meaningful. And that actually, you walk away and say, well, even if the story didn't overwhelm you or astound you, you say, well, that was beautiful, beautiful experience. I remember going to see Elvira Madigan when it was first produced, that movie. And I could name a hundred other ones. They were they were beautiful intrinsically. And they, they lifted you up. Uh, you, you weren't just brought down into the mire with filth. You, and that, even though that even that can be exciting. Like, like you know, a, a fast ride in a fast automobile can be exciting. But it doesn't really lift anybody's spirit up. It's a different kind of lift. That's adrenaline. A spiritual lift is something quite different. That's where I'm going. Uh, more of the same of that, I think. And also, I think I'm going to spend a little more time in Europe, which uh, it's always gratifying, you know. Mm-hmm. In Italy, specifically? Well, I like Germany a lot. I go to Germany, Italy, I go to Bayreuth. I like Italy. I like Austria, I like Switzerland. I think southern Italy is most attractive to me, middle to southern. And uh, I've also been recently to India, which is... Very interesting. Dubai, Mumbai. Uh, that's how you get there. You fly to Dubai, then you go to Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. But New York will always be my home because it is, it is truly the only. I mean, it's truly the only really true international city. London, London is still the British capital, and uh, and New York has just got this step outside of all of it. And no matter how much these upstart cities try to become great and gleaming and all that. They don't have the uh, the pedigree the city has. I love it here. And what do you have upcoming? Do you have anything upcoming? 
Yeah, we've got um, New York City Opera on the 30th of November at the Union League Club, which I'm going to help out with. Uh, we've got um, a couple of concerts coming up in uh, 2016, art shows, things like that, the usual calendar of events. I'm going to work a little more closely with the Casa Italiana also at the New York University, where Stefano Albertini, who is brilliant, runs that institution masterfully. I'm going to help him out as much as I can. That's what's ahead, Trace. And um, before the show, you and I had talked, um, there were a couple of questions you wanted me to ask. One was, how did you get to be so lovable? And the other one was about the <laughs> uh, Scuola Italia. So which of those questions would you like to feel? No. Uh, Tracy, I am a man more sinned against than sinning, and that's how I want to keep it. I'm not lovable. I'm just uh, an ordinary Joe trying to do a job. I really mean that. That's how I feel about what I do, which makes it really a lot more refreshing. I don't have... And I, I would counsel all my friends not to idealize what you do, just to do it practically. I mean, the greatest writers, the greatest poets, the greatest artists in history were incredibly good practical craftsmen who looked upon their work. You know, I went to see Ed Joby, and Eddie's been a friend of mine for 35 years, one of my best friends. And he does a whole notebook of sketches before he even touches his canvas. I mean, I'm talking about a hundred sketches when he has an inspiration for a work simultaneously. He actually works at it. There's this modern image of art that suddenly there's a, a dash of inspiration and the words start pouring out or the paint starts coming out or, the, uh, or suddenly someone has a, an expression that's got to be captured. Um, it's all work. And that's what, what I've learned. And that's true of me. I'm a a very plotting worker at what I do. I don't, I don't really think I have any special inspiration. I just think it's a matter of discipline and work, which I go back to my upbringing for, where my teachers and Brother Joseph Damien, I'll never forget them. They were disciplined, caring people who cared more about the work than about you and, and, and about what was at hand. They, they were subject matter driven. So that's, that's what I've what I'm about, and that's where I'm going to go with the things I do in the future. And what's a fun fact people might not know about you? Well, I boxed. I had 18 fights. I um, I love boxing. I also played some polo. Not I wasn't very good. Uh, I hacked around the Blindbrook Polo Club. Uh, what are the facts about me? I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I I watch Columbo. I love, I love watching Columbo. And I like... Uh, I like sort of these, that's, a, that's about as popular as I'll get. And uh, on airplanes I read, I don't watch TV, but I, I don't know what fun facts there are. I'm not really an introvert um, or an extrovert either, you know, in between. Um, fun facts. What do you do in your spare know. time? Well, I do read. I am, a, I am a junkie reader, I mean. And I read texts over and over again, try to get the milk out of them. I do have a huge book collection. I mean, you may have seen it in my home. I have. I mean, I read. I read things like I just got this book of untranslatable terms from many languages. It is overwhelmingly interesting. Overwhelmingly interesting. I mean, take a term like "midleid," German expression, and try to translate it. And uh, there are many others. "Corgentil" in Italian. Try to translate those. Anyway, this book gives a whole um, expression explanation of what these words could mean, how they do mean, 
and that's what I, you know, I'm, I go back to being in philology, which is what Latin and Greek really is, is philology. And I still love words, and I love the uh, understanding them, getting all the meaning out of them. Obviously, I love words because I've talked so much over the last half hour, so I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it's been amazing. We only have a few minutes left. Can you tell my listeners where they could find out information about you, how they can contact you, so forth? Oh, well, I, I don't really think I'm worth contacting. I, but there is, uh, well, sure, my email is uh, sa, like South America, at cinn.com. Um, and I answer emails pretty much. I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I just think that that would be wasting everybody's time. Uh, instead, instead of writing to me, go read Ezra Pound, The ABC of Reading, or pick up Eliot's uh, essay, Hamlet and His Problems, or, you know, or, or read Yeats. Read, geez, read Yeats' work under Ben Bulman. I mean, what a great work of art that is. Or Stephen Spender. I think continually of those who are truly great. I mean, these are, that's what you should do instead of emailing me. I mean, if you want to email me, great. I'll give you the names of those things. Well, I'll so I'm, only a, a I'm only a reference. Yeah, well, my daughter did a website for me because I was giving so many speaking engagements that we got sick and tired of writing up and adjusting my resume. So she put everything down, adjusting meaning fitting it to the particular audience, the interest of the particular audience. So Claudia put everything down. I mean, I think she's got my my high school merit badges down there. Everything <laughs> is in that. So if you want to go look at it, www.stevacunto.com. Um, you could do that. But again, that's my half is introducing is reading the first act of King Lear. Well, what's your any last bits of wisdom, Steve? And also, don't forget, I'm advocating that you voice the production of Lear and play Lear. But anyways, last bits of wisdom. <laughs> that's of wisdom. Well, as I said, I keep my balance. A man more sinned against than sinning. That gives you a very good balance. And I urge everyone to, to see that way. I see things that way. That you, you know, you, you do, what's the expression? You do uh, well by doing good. And that's a good way to keep that balance uh, intact. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being a guest on Independent Artists and Thinkers. It was amazing to have you. You're a terrific guest. You have so much interesting stuff to say. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you Tracy. Much. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I can't understand you wanting to do it, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> no, you're amazing. Take care. So, ciao. Take care. Ciao, ciao. So that was the inimitable Steve Acunto, whom you can find out more about at steveacunto.com, the Vice Consul of Italy, uh, talking about high art and bringing yourself to art, which I think is really important. So to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back next week at our regular time, 1 o'clock on Thursday. Till next time, see you soon. This has been Tracy L. Flatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.